Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to him, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. Spirit of God, I pray in your mercy that those of us whom have been given ears to hear would indeed hear what it is that you would say to us through your living and active, perfect, sufficient, and authoritative word. And for those of us who have not yet been born again of the Spirit of God, that you would use your word and the power of your Spirit indeed to bring new life to those who are dead in their sins, that you would grant them for the first time ears to hear and eyes to see, to behold the wonders of your word, and for the first time to see with faith the glory and the majesty of our Savior. Give us understanding now as we seek to discern the truth and the meaning behind what you have inspired in your word through the hands of Luke. Pray that you would grant us faith, that you would encourage us, build us up, that you would convict us of sin, exhort us and call us up to more righteous, more holy living, empowered by your spirit for good works. And Father, I pray the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I ask and pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So our passage is Luke chapter 6, so naturally I'm going to ask you all to turn to Acts chapter 1. Because we're in Luke 6, we have to start in Acts 1, and if that doesn't make sense, it will soon enough, I promise. So the first chapter of the book of Acts is essentially the handoff from Jesus to the apostles, preparing them for what is to come, which we see in Acts chapter 2, which is the fulfillment of prophecies that God made long ago, the sending of his spirit, the establishing, the formal establishing of the new covenant through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so when we are here in the book of Acts, verses 1 to verse 5, Jesus essentially tells them, wait in Jerusalem. So don't leave. Stay here and wait because something's about to happen here in Jerusalem. We get down to verse 6 and we see this in verse 6 to 8. I'll read this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so he is going to send the Spirit 
and it will empower them, but they need to wait in Jerusalem before that happens. They can't leave. They can't go do something else. They have to wait there, and then he will send the Spirit. Down to verse 12, they're waiting. So they're doing what he said. They're waiting. They're praying. He promised power, and then he ascended back to heaven. So knowing that something's going to happen, waiting for this power, this Spirit, what do they do? They, they pray. We're, we're going to pray. Now, we don't know what they prayed. We don't exactly know what they were thinking. As far as they were concerned, the Lord said, wait, and you will receive power, and they were praying. Down to verse 15, what we see here in the first chapter of Acts, is that Judas Iscariot is dead at this point, and the result of their praying leads them to, to conclude, hey, we have to replace this guy. So that's one thing that came out of their praying, is they realized we need to fulfill his office. And they quote several Old Testament passages and say, it's almost as if whatever it is is coming. This power, this promise from Christ, the fact that he tells us to wait here, it can't happen unless they replace Judas. Now, we don't know if Jesus told them that. We don't know if he said, wait, oh, and by the way, you have to find another to fulfill Judas' office. Or if this was wisdom given to them as they were praying and seeking the Lord, they determined, well, we need to have another one. We have to get another so that they, in essence, can complete the circle of 12. There were 12 of them, now they're 11. They understand we need a, we need a 12th again before whatever is going to happen is going to happen. So verse 21 to 22, we see the process that they go through. Now, as a side note here, Acts 1, 21 and 22 is why there are no more apostles. So if anyone says, oh, this person's an apostle, or this person has an apostolic office, they're wrong. Because here, the 11 decide in order to be an apostle, there are three criteria. One, they had to have been witness to the life and ministry of Christ and see all the things that they saw. Two, they had to have experienced the resurrected Lord, Jesus, after his resurrection, in his glorified body. They had to have seen that, and then implied is the third criteria, which is the other 11 have to vouch for him and say, yeah, he's the one. So there were about 500 people, according to the Apostle Paul, who saw the resurrected Christ, but they're not all apostles. So here they determine, in order to complete the circle of 12, to, 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 to have 12 of us again, and there's a reason behind that. We'll, we'll see that in, in the text, surprisingly enough. Is they need to meet these criteria. So they go through these criteria. And then they put forth two men. One of them has like four names. And the other one is just one guy. Oh yeah, and just Matthias too. So what did they do in verses 23 to 26? They pray again. Doing a lot of praying. As they're trying to discern what to do. That's important. And they cast lots. So they basically roll dice and say, highest number wins. Matthias, you roll, you roll. Oh, the lot falls on Matthias. So they believe that this is the Lord's direction. They've been praying. They've been praying intensely and intentionally for wisdom, for power. And so they trust the Lord that if we're going to, as Gideon, put this fleece out, they're not testing God, but they're trusting him, saying, you're going to direct this, so... However the lot falls, that's who it is. 
and so they choose Matthias. Now, you will never see this man's name again in the rest of the New Testament. In fact, for the whole book of Acts, you're only going to see Peter, James, and John mentioned. So this is the question we have to ask ourselves. Why all this emphasis in replacing Judas if we're never going to hear from them ever again? And all, these three they even give the three names of the guy who didn't make it. Why? The apostles understood the importance of fulfilling Judas' office to once again have the circle of 12, these 12 apostles, in order that whatever Jesus promised would happen. And then sure enough, this is the end of chapter 1, and then you get into chapter 2, and what happens? As they're praying, again, they hear rumbling. The Spirit of God is poured upon His people, as promised in Joel chapter 2. And here we see the birth of the early church. So this is what I want to, one of the things I think we can conclude from this chapter or from this passage here in Acts 1. The replacing of Judas was an important enough matter that the apostles devoted much prayer and much trust in the Lord. It was, it was an important decision that had to be made. How do we replace Judas? How much more important how much more prayer would be required in the choosing of the 12 apostles initially? If replacing one is so important and requires so much prayer and so much trust, then how much more prayer, how much more trust would be required in the choosing of all 12 of them? So with that, now let's go to Luke chapter 6. And we're going to see that indeed so important is the choosing of the twelve that our Lord will devote himself essentially to an entire night of prayer. Not because he's merely a man, but because in his humanity the Lord also seeks the wisdom and direction of the Father and empowerment for what is about to come. Let's go back to Luke chapter 6. So before we do our passage proper, let's look at verse 11. We've got a little bit of recap because where Lucas ended off last week in verse 11 really sets up the thrust of the text. So Luke 6, 11, we read this. This is, at, so, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, performs a miracle, and their response is not to praise God for his kindness and not to worship the Lord for the healing of a man, but rather to be filled with fury and decide how we're going to deal with this Jesus guy. Now, what starts off as conspiring and planning will eventually lead to his arrest and his murder. And the Lord knows this. He knows the hearts of men. He knows their thoughts and their intentions. So he heals a man and they want to kill him. So how is it that the Lord responds to this intention? They want to remove him, and he knows it. Well, look at verse 12. This is his response. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, 
and all night he continued in prayer to God. That rhetorical device, which is translated in our English in these days, is Luke's way of connecting what he just said to what he's about to say. This is both in Luke and in Acts. In fact, we just read that in Acts chapter 1, when it says, in those days, as they were praying, then they decided, oh, we need to replace Judas, connecting it to the Lord's promise of the sending of the Spirit and of power. So Luke is connecting Jesus' decision to pray to the threats that just came from the religious leaders. How are we going to deal with him? How does Jesus respond? To pray. He must commune with the Father in prayer in light of the threats, in light of the desire to deal with him. Jesus doesn't say, I got this. We're good. They can't touch me. I'm bulletproof. I can just call down fire. What does our Lord say in his humanity? I must seek the Father in prayer. For what? Well, for wisdom. Not only for the choosing of the 12, as we'll see, but for strength and wisdom in dealing with the fact that here you have now a band of religious leaders that will grow more and more hostile to Christ, and he has to deal with them, deal with their tricks and their rhetoric and the fact that they want to lay hands on him. And you'll see it in the Gospels that Jesus just kind of went out from their midst. They tried to gather him and he just kind of phased through them as if it were. So he's seeking strength and wisdom from the Father. Now you, you might have a problem with that in that, but wait a minute, he's God. Why does he have to seek strength and wisdom from the Father? And in this, we have the great mystery of the dual nature of Christ, that he is truly God and truly man. So in his deity, the Lord has power to raise people from the dead and the Lord has all knowledge. But in his humanity, He's a man. He aged. He probably got cut in the midst of his carpentry work. He clearly was cut and he bled upon the cross. And the scriptures reveal to us early in the life of Christ, he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So in his humanity, the Lord learns. The seven-year-old Jesus needed to learn how to do things in his humanity. And so in his humanity, he seeks from the Father wisdom. Now, let, let me say this as an aside. If the Lord, the Messiah, who is truly God and truly man, must seek strength and wisdom from the Father, do you think that you must also? Or are we more equipped and more able and more strong than the Lord that we got this? When the Lord himself must seek wisdom and strength from the Father. Just, we'll let that sit for a bit. It's going to become a little heavier as we go on through the passage. Okay, he's about to do something of monumental importance. Next week, Lucas is going to begin Luke's Sermon on the Plain. This is a little bit different than the Sermon on the Mount. There's dispute we're actually talking about this I think unless he's changed his mind we both agree that this is not just Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount edited but this is a totally different sermon that Jesus preached it's similar to the one in Matthew because as a traveling preacher and rabbi he would probably have a few sermons that he would preach several times over in different regions 
but the Sermon on the Plains in Luke is the formal beginning of Jesus' teaching ministry. Up until this point, he's healed people, he's engaged, but his formal teaching ministry begins after this. So surely he seeks strength and wisdom from the Father to pray before he's about to enter into three years, two and a half years of teaching ministry and healing ministry. And so what does he do? He spends all night praying, all night praying, communing with the Father. Verse 13 says this, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Now day breaks after an intense night of prayer and day breaks 6 a.m., 7 a.m. That's when the day starts. From the many disciples, we don't know, hundreds, thousands, all these disciples are around him. What he does is he chooses 12 and he calls them up to the mountain with him. We'll see this in the next verse that he comes down with them, which means of all of the disciples, he chooses 12 and he calls them up to be with him on the mountain. And a disciple is a general term for one who learns from, who sits at the feet of a rabbi. But the term apostle is a little bit different. The word basically means messenger or sent out one. Like if you just do a simple Greek dictionary check, it'll say messenger, sent out one. The force, the, the nuance is probably a little bit stronger than that. This is what one commentator said in giving meaning for what apostle means. It's an authorized representative, it's probably a little closer. Such an emissary was entrusted with the full authority to represent the one for whom he had been commissioned to act. So it's not as if a king says, you're my messenger, here's my message, go deliver it. But they're delivering the message as an emissary with all of the authority given to them by the king and they operate under that authority. They carry with that the weight given to them. Now this fits when we get to the end of the public ministry of Christ, when he confirms to them, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. So the apostles are uniquely positioned in redemptive history as these authorized emissaries for Christ. It's different than any other disciple in all of time. These are 12 and if you include Paul, 13 unique men commissioned by Christ for a specific purpose. And then when they die, and the last of them dies, that purpose is done. As Paul would say in Ephesians, the foundation has been laid. And then the building of the church has been going on for 2,000 years. Verse 14. So here we have their names. Simon, whom he named Peter. And Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, a couple weeks ago, we saw in Luke's gospel the calling of Levi. This is probably Matthew. It's another name for him. So there's not an additional one who's just kind of sneaking on in. But here you have the formal listing of the names. Now, there's a few things to notice about this list. First of all, if you are like a geek for genealogies and lists of names, you probably noticed, I'm sure several of you noticed, hey, wait a minute, that's a different order than Mark and Matthew. Why does Luke order them differently? 
Why does he group them differently? That's a great question. I don't really know. It's a lot of conjecture. It ultimately doesn't matter. I don't think there's a super deep meaning behind the slightly different grouping of the 12 in Luke. But interesting to note would be the changing of Simon's name to Peter, which means rock. So Peter, as if it were, is a chief among equals. Within the 12, you have an inner circle of 12. That's Peter, James, and John. And then even among Peter, James, and John, you have Peter, who essentially is given a unique task. He's the one who delivers a sermon at Pentecost. He's the one who begins the formal evangelistic church ministry to the Jews. So we have Peter here set apart by the Lord. And then Judas is marked out as well as the traitor, the one who would betray him. And he chooses 12, not eight, not seven. Seven's a good number. Seven's a good biblical number. Seven days in creation. He chooses 12, not 14, but 12. Why? Well, it's hard not to see an Old Testament connection here. It's hard not to see when you think of 12 as a Jew, you are thinking, oh yeah, the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. That's what you're thinking about. And the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, essentially represent the complete people of God in the Old Covenant. So the number 12, when you see that number throughout the scriptures, in places like Revelation, which I'll look at in a sec, usually the number 12 is a number that the Lord has given that symbolizes, it represents the complete people of God. And so as you have the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, so here you have Jesus with 12 apostles, essentially saying, these men are not only to be the fulfillment of, they're not only to accomplish in a sense what Israel was supposed to, but these 12 represent the people of God in the new covenant. This is the new people of God. This is the church age people of God. It's interesting to note, again, because I'm sure you went there automatically, in Revelation 4, Revelation 5, Revelation 11, and Revelation 19, there's talks of 24 elders and 24 thrones. Now, for anyone here who's really good at math, 24 divided by 2 is 12. And it is probably the case, though I'd be open to being wrong, it's probably the case that these elders and these thrones around the throne of the Ancient of Days represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, and the 12 apostles. A picture of the complete and total people of God through all of space and time, both those under the old covenant in the flesh and all of those in the new covenant in faith. So this is the significance of 12. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of Israel. He calls himself true Israel. He calls himself the true vine, which Israel was called the vine of God in the Old Testament. He's the son of God, and Israel was called God's son. Out of Egypt I called my son. So Christ himself and these apostles are the fulfillment of, are in time everything that the Old Testament was pointing to in terms of God's people and their mission. Israel's job was to be a light to the nations. Their job was, as we read in Deuteronomy, that through their relationship with Yahweh, the nations would say, who else has a God who hears them? Who else has a God so near to them? They were to be a light. And so here you have 12 apostles, and how do they function? As a light in the first century, bringing the gospel to the ancient world, establishing the church, 
it's not, Jesus doesn't, just doesn't pick 12 because it's a convenient number. He is communicating to them and to us that God is accomplishing something that he's been in the business of doing for a long time. Their fulfillment of promises and prophecies made, they represent the totality of God's people throughout all of space and time. And he, Christ, through them, will accomplish what Israel failed to do. And he will bring about, he will actuate, he will enact the new covenant through his life, death, resurrection, and the sending of his spirit, and through these men establishing the early church. So it's fitting to have 12 apostles bringing a full circle, if you will, which is what we saw in Acts chapter 1. The circle of 12 has to be complete before God does what he does in accomplishing his purposes in the providence of God. He's not bound by the number 12, but he is so determined that he will operate in this way with these symbols, with these numbers representing things. Verse 17, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So the 12 of all the disciples, the 12 he calls up on the mountain with him, he gives one a new name. He names them all apostles with a unique ministry. And then Jesus comes down the mountain with the 12 to a flat place to engage in the first kind of formal sermon, the, the beginning of his public ministry officially. And he'll be delivering the sermon on the plain. And again, it feels very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll be reading through it and thinking it's similar, but it's different. It's, it's significantly different. So either this was the sermon Jesus preached, and Matthew's playing a little fast and loose with the details, or Matthew was the sermon that Jesus preached and Luke is messing around, or I think the best explanation is these are two different sermons. Much like the cleansing of the temple. It was probably two different times that Jesus did that. It's okay, we don't... We don't have to wrap everything up in a nice little bow. It's it, fine. He preached it twice. Not a big deal. I've preached more. I preached certain sermons more than once in my life. And when I preach them a second time years later, they're different than the first time I preached them. That's just logical. That's practical. If you're at Evergreen for long enough, I'm sure you're going to hear something that sounds very similar to a sermon preached years ago but that's different now because life and years and experience influence and flavor how it is that the word of God is brought to the people of God, okay? Verse 18. So these, they came near to him to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. So they came near to Jesus, why? Because he has authority, that's why. Because it wasn't like the scribes and the Pharisees. It wasn't like the religious leaders. He was different. He had authority. He operated in a power that was different than other teachers of the day. So they come to him to hear him. And they come to be healed of their many diseases. Those who are pressed with the, non, the, the demonic spirits, they come to him as well. That he would cast them out. And this is going to mark the rest of the public ministry of our Lord. Essentially these three things. He will teach... He will heal, and he will cast out demons. This is a public minute. He will teach, and he will heal many, and he will cast out demons. Now, 
as you not only go through the rest of Luke, but really as you understand the public ministry of Christ, what Jesus is doing, among other things, in the teaching and the healing and the casting out of demons, is he is showing the people, this is what the kingdom of God is like. That's why he will start off many parables by saying, let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a man who goes sow some seed. And then Jesus will calm a storm. What's going on? He is showing you this is what the kingdom of God is like. God rules over nature and natural disasters. And then he will raise someone from the dead. Why? Because he's showing you this is what the kingdom of God is like. Victory over death and resurrection for those who are in Christ. And then he'll cast out a demon because he's showing you that he once and for all will destroy all demonic powers when the kingdom is seen in his fullness. So the teaching ministry of Christ, among many things, is him showing through word and deed, this is what the kingdom of God is like, and this is what you look forward to in hope when the kingdom of God is fully realized on this earth. Disease gone, demonic gone, disaster gone, and death conquered. This will be the public ministry of our Lord. And he will tell them and show them what the kingdom of God is like. Verse 19. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. So Jesus had power to heal many people from many different things. Now here's a question that I think is going to tie together the beginning of this passage. Where did the power come from? Now, yes, the power came from the fact that our Lord is truly God. And in his divine nature, he has power and authority over the physical and the spiritual realm. Of course, you can't say that he learned that power in terms of he became divine. He didn't become God. He is eternally God having taken on human flesh. So yes, that's where the power comes from. But I think, and I see the connection here in Luke, that the ministry of our Lord, its power, its effectiveness, comes from the fact that our Lord, both here and throughout his ministry, understands that he is dependent upon the Father and communes with the Father in prayer, sometimes all night, so that he would have wisdom and power to do what the Father has called him to do. In John chapter 6, Jesus in his humanity says, I've not come to do my own will. It's John 6, 37. I've come, I haven't come to do my own will, but I've come to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given to me. What Jesus is saying there is, I have a mission to accomplish that as a man has been given to me from the Father. Which is why as a man, he says, I need wisdom from the Father and power from the Father in order to do what I've been sent to do. Jesus just doesn't go, listen, I'm God, we're good. I'm going to make it happen. But as a man, and he needs to be truly man in order to pay for our sins and represent us on the cross. He has to be a man. He can't just be God. He has to absorb the wrath of God as a man for us. 
but he is dependent upon the Father for wisdom and for power. So I would argue, even here in this section, the fact that he is teaching with authority, the fact that he has power to heal and power to cast out demons, and the people are drawn to him is because he spent all night praying with the Father. All night seeking wisdom and power and strength from the Father, and the Father answers that prayer, and here you have Jesus performing miracles, signs, and wonders, and teaching with authority in a way that people want to listen to him. Our Lord understood the massive importance of the choosing of the twelve, which is another reason why he spent all night praying. He spent all night praying because they were threatening him, and because they were discussing how do we deal with them. He spent all night praying to seek power from God, but also wisdom to choose rightly the twelve of the sea of disciples. Because he understood, as we already read in Acts, that the sending of God's Spirit couldn't take place until the circle of twelve was completed. These emissaries, these messengers representing the people of God had to be established before the Spirit of God would come. And our Lord knew that, which is why he took all night to seek wisdom from the Father, to choose the right twelve, in order to see the purposes of God accomplished. So his power comes in part from the fact that he then and regularly communes with the Father. Now, at this point of the passage, we just kind of go, okay, so they want to kill him. In his human nature, he seeks wisdom and power. The Lord gives it to him. He chooses the 12, and then he heals people. Now let's get to the, let's get to the meat, right? Because the Sermon on the Plain, this is the exciting part. Same thing in Matthew. Everyone loves Matthew 5 to 7. Let's just hurry up and get there, right? That's the good part. These verses seem like fluff. They seem like rhetorical filler, like Luke had a minimum number of words he needed to submit to the publisher. And so he needed to add this section about the choosing of the 12 and let you... No, of course not. Of course not. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke and for correction and for training that we would be made more righteous and complete, lacking no good work. Every single word is sufficient and authoritative and given by God. And Luke himself, who isn't thinking, oh, I'm writing scripture because I'm inspired by God, is an intentional historian. He's a doctor. He's methodical. Every word he writes, and I would argue every word everyone in the New Testament writes, is intentional. He's trying to tell a story. He's trying to communicate something, primarily to Theophilus, so that he would understand all that happened regarding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But so the readers would know and understand, so what's Luke doing here? Why have this section? Why have the emphasis on Jesus praying after the, the threats of those who want to get rid of him, and then seeing him choose the twelve, and this emphasis, because he had power, because he had authority, this is why they came to him. So this is the question. And this, I think, is, is, is good for us for application. And as I said earlier, if our Lord understood that he too was needing to seek time with the Father in order to have wisdom and power, do any of us think that we are better or stronger or more capable that we can just do it on our own? 
no, no, I can live, I can obey, I can work, I can make difficult decisions. I can decide who I'm gonna marry, where I'm gonna move, how to handle this difficult situation, how to handle trouble with the child, how to handle conflict in my family. Nah, I'll figure it out, I'm good. I'll throw up a quick, God give me wisdom. I'll maybe read a couple verses in the Bible, I'll do a word search online, and then I'll figure it out, because I'm smart. And because I've been around a while, I have wisdom, I read a good book on parenting, I read a great book on this, I got this. Our Lord didn't think that way. We're foolish if we think that way. So here's a question. I don't need an answer. I don't need hands up. Would you describe your life as one that is filled with power from the Lord? Now, when I say that, don't hear you walk around and everyone you touch is healed and people flock to you because of your authority. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your Christian life. Does it feel weak and feeble and helpless? I just can't obey God. Sin presents itself and I'm powerless. I just give in. Here's the temptation, I fall. Here's the, here's the opportunity for me to stand firm in my faith, for me to be bold. I flake, I fold. I, I'm a coward. Is your Christian life, your following the Lord, marked by power? And what does power mean? It means obedience, holiness, boldness. In Romans, when Paul says, the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead, this is Romans 8, will give life to your mortal bodies. What's Paul saying? That the sanctifying work of God happens through the power of the spirit of God. That same power raised him from the dead. Therefore, is your life marked by the sanctifying work of the power of God? Or is your life marked with a, I got my ticket, I'm barely holding on. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, I'm going to make it in the kingdom, but the flames are just hitting my toes on the way out. Is that your Christian life? Weak, helpless, hopeless, feeble? You're no match for sin when it comes your way? Maybe the reason that you feel and indeed are powerless in your life is because you are significantly lacking times where you commune with the Lord asking for power. Not power to perform miracles. Not power to go out and do signs and wonders. But how about the power to love your husband or wife well? You cannot do that in your own strength. Period. Period. You need power from God to obey him, to be excellent at work, to work hard with integrity and not rob your employer because you're lazy and maybe sneak a few supplies home and who cares? They, you need power to not be that kind of sinful, deceptive worker. You need power to tell people about Jesus. What, what, how do I know that? Because a lot of us probably don't tell anyone about Jesus. Because we are powerless. Powerless. You know right now if a stranger or even a close friend or family member who does not love the Lord, you know that you have to share the gospel with them to call them to turn from their sin, 
to find life in Christ. And the reason you don't is because you're afraid of what they'll say or what they'll do or you'll lose the relationship. And so you shrink in fear. Why? Because the power of God is not there strengthening you. You just shrink into disobedience. You need power to tell people what you believe. In order to obey the Lord, in order to see the sanctifying power of His Spirit, we must seek Him in prayer for that. For that. It's because we neglect prayer. And not just a one line before lunch or a quick, hey, God bless my wife and all she does, amen. I mean intentionally seeking the Lord for power, saying I'm weak, I cannot do this. Lord, I'll fail if you don't give me the strength. I want to read a quote from Spurgeon's sermon on Luke 6, 12. Okay, so this is Jesus saying he needs to go pray. He has to go pray with the Father. You are to be conformed to the image of Christ. Be conformed in this respect, that you are people of prayer. You desire to know the secret power with people. Seek to obtain his power with God. You wish to obtain the blessings which were so copiously bestowed upon Christ. Therefore, seek them where he sought them. Find them where he found them. Which is where? In communion with the Father in prayer. I, like, please always hold this in your mind. If the Lord required communion with the Father for power, I need at least 10 times of that than whatever he did. That doesn't mean go pray 24 hours a day. But it does mean that we regularly and intentionally plead with the Lord for power to obey him. Forget about miracles. All of us need to be better husbands and wives and we need to work with integrity and we need to stop giving into temptation. How about we start with power to simply obey God in the little things and then we can worry about changing the world for Jesus. Let's just do the little things first. Like stop being so angry and so selfish and so short-sighted and so cowardly. Let's ask for power for those things first and then we can worry about bigger things. We must seek these things where our Lord himself sought them, which is around the throne of our Father in heaven. How about wisdom? So power, the Lord prays, the Father gives him power to heal and the authority and casting out demons. What about wisdom? Knowing what to do and how to follow Christ. We have all asked questions like this. Who do I marry? Do I marry this person? How do I know if this is the person I need to marry? What about this job? There's a few options. Do I take this job? I have two jobs before me. I have the potential to take another job. What do I do? Where do I live? What about this house? Where do I move? What about relocating? What about big decisions regarding children? Big decisions regarding money? We have all asked ourselves the question, what do I do? What we're wanting is wisdom. Now, in our short-sightedness and in our sin, we say, I need wisdom. So what am I going to do? Maybe I'll ask a friend. 
Maybe I'll read a Bible. I'll do a word study on marriage. I'll just search marriage. Okay, yeah, right? Don't be yoked with unbelievers. That's good enough. Or maybe, and by maybe I mean most certainly, what we say is, no, I'll figure this out. No, I'm not a dummy. I'll figure this out. I'll look at the jobs. One pays more than the other. One has better hours than the other. That's it. I figured it out. Look how smart I am. Look how I could figure it out. You know how many people have made stupid decisions because the door flings wide open. It looks easy. and like, clearly this is what I have to do. And then they look back months and years later and realize, boy, we really, uh, we made a terrible decision, didn't we? Because in our weakness, we trusted our own wisdom and our own assessment and thought, yeah, we have all the information needed. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't go to the father and say, I need wisdom. I need to know how I need to handle this situation. And so we are desperately in need of wisdom. So the question, again, I don't need hands. And we're not going to, no altar call. When you make decisions, not little decisions like which deodorant I choose. Feel free to pray for that. That's, that's fine. The Lord's not going to disparage that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of decisions that we know are significantly impactful, life trajectory altering decisions. What do you do at the precipice of making that decision? Do you say we must seek the Lord and his wisdom? Or do you say, we'll just figure it out. I'll make a list. I'm smart. I have experience. We've probably all done that way more times than we should. And we find ourselves in situations where because of sin and because of weakness, we are saying, boy, I wish I didn't do this. Okay. Then at the start of it, the first thing you do, like our Lord did, was you seek wisdom from the Father. James says, if you lack it, ask for it. He'll give it to you. And if you don't ask, you won't get it. It's not an automatic dispensary. I'm a Christian now. I don't have to ask for wisdom and sanctifying power. God's just going to give it to me. No. No, you have not because you ask not. So ask the Father for wisdom. Wisdom. Maybe your present situation with a lack of direction. I don't know what to do. I'm confused. I'm lost. Maybe your lack of direction or maybe the awful circumstances that have come from unwise decisions is because you did not forsake the Lord in prayer. God, t- tell me what to do. Show me. Help me. Help me. Reveal to me. Confirm it in your word, in others, in my spirit, in circumstances. Direct me. Guide me. Please. Maybe that's why we're in situations where like, I, 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 I can't believe I'm here right now in my life, in my work. Ask yourself, honestly, did you seek the Lord in prayer before you made that decision? And if the answer is no, yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised in the least. Again, Spurgeon on Luke 6, 12. Christ was just about to choose 12 apostles. And before that solemn act of ordination was performed, he sought power for them from the Most High. Who can tell what blessings 
were vouchsafed or secured to the Twelve in answer to that midnight intercession. Who knows how protected and blessed the Apostles were because the Lord prayed for them. So, Christian, if you enter upon a new enterprise or engage in something that is weightier or more extensive than what you have done before, select a night or a day and set it apart for special communion with the Most High. Now, I need to say at this point, standing before you is not a man who is just like killing that prayer life. I'm up every morning at 5 a.m. and I'm praying. That is not me. There are days that I reach a point halfway through the day where I realize I have neglected because busyness, because of things pressing upon me, family stuff, circumstance stuff. Oh, the guy wasn't supposed to come this early and fix the, 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 the concrete around the house. Uh oh, I, I, I throw my plan for a loop. There are days where I wake up and I go on and I realize I haven't, I haven't sought the Lord in his word and his prayer as I ought to and catch myself. And then at that moment, either by God's grace, I say, well, I need to now. Or like an idiot, I say, no, I'll do it later. No, I'll find time later because the day is going to get less busy as it goes on. No, less things will happen. No, have more time. That is a foolish, unwise thing to say. So I'm not, I'm not a prayer warrior. I don't even like that term. It's not biblical. I'm not a prayer expert. I'm, I'm someone who understands that if I want to obey Christ with wisdom and power, I'm dependent upon the Father, and these things are acquired. They are gifts given as I seek Him in prayer. And I fail as much as the next person, and I'm needing growth and sanctification as much as the next person. I'm just pleading with us through the Word of God that this is the reality. We are powerless and unwise because we do not seek the Lord in prayer. That's why. So I want to close with this. What does a lack of prayer reveal in the human heart? So we don't pray. Why not? And we can come up with all sorts of reasons. I'm busy. That's not actually a reason, by the way. That's just an excuse. I'm busy. You're not that busy. If you can find, if you can find an hour today to play Candy Crush on your phone, you can, you can carve 10% of that and seek the Lord in prayer. Don't tell me you're too busy. That's not, you're, you, might, you might be able to fool yourself, but you're not fooling me, you're not fooling the Lord. You are not too busy. No one is that busy. So what does a lack of prayer reveal in the hearts of you and I? What's going on in our souls that we try to justify our prayerlessness? A lack of faith. A lack of what? We don't actually believe that God can do it. That's what a lack of prayer reveals. That we say, I know I need, I know I need wisdom. I know this person, this difficult person, I, I, I plead with the Lord to change them, to change me. But here's what we, believe, here's what we say without saying it. But I don't think he's going to actually do it. Therefore, why bother praying? A lack of faith in the power, in the kindness, in the ability of God drives us to prayerlessness. Because we don't, again, we would never say this because we're far too sanitized in Christian culture. Like we would never come to church and say this because it's too honest and we're never that honest. We would never say, I don't pray because I don't pray because I don't believe God's powerful enough. That's why I don't pray. 
I don't believe he's good or kind enough. I don't actually believe he sovereignly directs all things. But that's functionally what's going on in our hearts when we lack the faith to come to the Lord in prayer. We doubt that he will hear us. And for whatever reason, we don't believe he can accomplish what we desire him to. So we don't pray. How about this? Pride. We think I can do this on my own. No, no, no. He's given me a mind and his spirit and, and experience and wisdom. Look what I've been able to do. A successful job, a wonderful family. Look, a lot, of, a lot of other people would look at me and think, wow, godly, knowledgeable, great family. And so we buy the hype that others and ourselves have created. And we say, I, don't, I really don't desperately need the Lord's direction. I can figure this out on my own. I don't need power from God. I'm strong enough. You're not strong enough. You're not. This is a condemnation from the Lord in the book of Revelation to one of the churches when he says, you think you are rich and powerful and you don't realize you are poor and helpless and naked. Therefore, seek him that you might be refined as gold is in the fire, that you would be clothed, that your nakedness and your neediness and your poverty and your weakness would be dealt with by the Lord. In our pride and in our arrogance, we think I can do this on my own. A great many mess in our lives have stemmed from that initial point. No, 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 I don't have to ask God, I can figure it out. Again, I don't need hands, but my guess would be, Everyone here knows that's not true because we can think of at least at one time where we thought, I don't need to do that. I can figure this out. And then, uh-oh, it completely fell apart because it turns out I'm not that smart and I'm not that powerful. Yeah, just conjecture. Maybe I'm the only one that is still requiring immense amounts of sanctification, but probably not. It's probably all of us. It's probably all of us. Okay, we, it's, there is a line we walk as believers where... On the one hand, he has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power. Where he's given us his word, he's given us wisdom. We're not to be shaking in our boots and always worried. I can't make, I can't do anything. I can't get out of bed. I can't put on socks unless the Lord tells me which ones. That's, a, that's silly. So there's a line where we do have wisdom, we do have power. But on the other side of that line that we walk is the reality. Friends... You are not that strong and you are not that capable and you are not that smart. I know this because it's true of me, despite what I tell myself whenever someone says or does something bad about me and then I try to build myself up. You're better, you're smarter than that. You're, what are they talking about? I know the truth that we're not nearly as strong or as capable as we think. Not even close, not even close. When's the last time you spilled some tea or some coffee? And you're telling me that you have the power and the ability that you are able to task yourself with the direction of your life and with the care of your salvation. And you can't even drink a cup of coffee without spilling it on your shirt. You are not nearly as strong or as capable as you think you are. Just be honest about it. And then seek from the Lord what is needed. The Lord opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. He's near to the one who is contrite in heart. How about this? Fear. Fear of what? What's to be afraid of if I pray? You ready for this? 
that God will answer your prayer. That's what you're afraid of. Why would I be afraid of that? Because if God actually opens the door for you to share the gospel with someone, guess what? You have to do it. So you don't even ask for it because you don't want to do it. I don't even want, so I'm not even going to ask. What happens if the Lord answer your, answers your prayer? Lord, give me guidance, direct me. Which job, which city, which this, what should I do? And then he reveals it to you. You're afraid, but I don't want that one though. That's not the one I wanted to do. I didn't like this job. This is too difficult. So I, will, I might as well not ask him and decide on my own. Like a child who doesn't ask their parents for permission because they know exactly what their parents are going to say. And they don't want that answer. So they'd rather say, better to ask for forgiveness than permission. I'll just do it on my own. And then when I mess up, I'll say, oh, I'm really sorry, God, can you fix it? That's us. We are afraid that he will indeed answer our prayers. We're afraid that when we say, Lord, sanctify me, he's going to bring you through pain and suffering and difficulty to do it. And we don't want that. So we don't ask for it. We are afraid that he will answer our prayers. Which, by the way, only affirms the first two things I said. That we're actually proud and we lack faith and we're weak. And so, don't be overcome with the fear of him answering your prayers. That's a tremendous thing. If you say, God, please open the door, bring me someone that I might, that I might share the gospel with him. And then they do. He's essentially answered your prayer. Here's the gift of you can obey me now. It's, an, it's a gift to be able to share the light of the gospel with someone. And if our response to that is, you know what? I don't want that gift. I want another gift instead. How silly and proud and, and ungrateful of us if we respond to our Lord in that way. So Jesus wanted wisdom. He got it. He sought the Father in prayer. He got wisdom. He chose the twelve. And he chose the right twelve, including Judas, who was destined to betray him. God's providential eternal plan would be that this betrayer, or as other gospel writers say, a son of perdition from the beginning, Jesus chose the right twelve. Jesus needed power, and he got it. And begins his public ministry in power, with healings and miracles. Jesus needed strength to deal with the three-year onslaught of the religious leaders, their lies and their tricks. He needed strength. He seeks the Father in prayer, and then he gets it. Then he gets it. And by the way, he does so ongoing. Prayer is not like a one-time infinite fill-up. I want wisdom, and I add, now I have it forever. It is a circumstantial, as we live, we seek the Lord, which is modeled for us by Christ. So you might wonder, can you then give us five steps to unlock this prayer life? Give us the list. Give me the thing. I got my notes ready. How do I become a prayer warrior? Okay, there is no magic bullet for unlocking a great prayer life. There is no five points to becoming a prayer warrior. It doesn't work that way. The answer is a difficult and persistent and intentional obedience. That's the answer. That's the answer. So let me throw a few things out that are nothing new. They are very old, but we still neglect them. We must engage with the Word of God regularly and intentionally. Full stop. 
I don't read my Bible that much. You're, you're done. Your, your spiritual life, you will atrophy. I don't care how gifted you are. I don't care what you can do. I don't care how much money you give to the church. I don't care what everyone else thinks about you. It is irrelevant. If you neglect the word of God, you will be powerless and weak and useless for the purposes of Christ. You could do everything else in the Christian life. And if you neglect the thing that we need to live, not just bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God, if you neglect that, you will not grow in sanctification and you will not be able to obey him. You must seek the Lord in his word regularly and intentionally. Here's another thing, not neglecting gathering with the saints because this is how one of the ways, the one of the ways the Lord draws us that we indeed would seek him in prayer. Because being with people shows us what? Well, the need. So I know how to pray for this person. Or this is a difficult person and I don't want to be around them because of conflict. So being around them will force you to ask the Lord for wisdom and patience and to be kind and not to be a sourpuss and go to the other side of the room when they come on Sunday morning, but actually for the strength to confess and to be reconciled and stop acting like a five-year-old. You need the, that, you will be driven to pray that if you are forced to be with the people of God, especially when there's conflict. That's a good thing. When iron sharpens iron, sparks fly, my friends. That's okay, that's according to the design of God. The sparks need to fly, it's how we sharpen one another. So we have to gather to sing, to avail ourselves of the means of grace, the word of God taught, the Lord's Supper for our joy and for our encouragement, for our edification, the songs that draw worship out from our souls, prayer, the giving of our offerings, forcing us to trust God and not the money. All of these things drive us to pray. Uh oh, it's time for me to give a portion of what the Lord has given me. So what do I need to do? I need to pray that he provides because by putting this money in the plate, this would have made this month easier. If I just decided to hold this back, this would be a much easier month. So I'm going to give it because God tells me to. It's going to hurt. And then I'm going to ask God to provide for me. Being with the people in worship, in the assembly of the saints, will drive you to pray and will create opportunities where you will seek the Father in prayer. Confess your sins to one another will drive you to pray. I have to say I'm sorry that I sinned against this person. You're going to need a whole lot of prayer for humility and wisdom and to not go in with your defenses up. Yeah, but you did this and you said this. That kind of attitude will be dealt with as you seek the Father in prayer. Help me to humbly be reconciled to my brother or sister to confess my sins to them. All of these things show us that we're utterly dependent upon God. As we seek Him in the Word and in confession and in worship, they remind us that we're weak and not that smart and really not that capable and really not that great. But our Savior is, and He apportions and gives gifts and answers prayer as we seek Him. We're reminded of how much we need Him. His power to be at work in our lives to obey Him daily. His wisdom to understand what to do, how to make sense, how to discern the world around us, and how to follow Him as He directs our lives. And so I hope 
Uh, you know, we're going to see this especially when you get to Luke chapter 11, eventually. When the disciples will say, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. And this is not Jesus' way of saying, here's your cookie cutter prayer. Just recite this 10 times a day. Jesus is modeling for them a heart posture. So I would encourage you today, this week, flip ahead to Luke chapter 11 and read how Jesus teaches us, teaches us to pray. The confession of the holiness of God. The sovereign purpose of God in accomplishing his will on heaven and on earth. The kingdom of God that we seek for his glory and for our good. The provision from God every day that we have what we need to obey him. The humility to confess sins and be reconciled to one another as he has forgiven us. The strength to fight temptation and say no to sin that we might obey him. I pray that that passage and even this example of our Lord himself in Luke 6 would drive you to be people who seek him in prayer when wisdom and power are needed for the sake of this church, for the glory of God, and for the good of your souls. Let me pray.